So I'd like to say a couple of things before I begin our sermon uh, for this morning. <clears throat> I don't want to let pass over what just happened. Uh, there was really, just a moment ago, a powerful testimony that was given. Uh, on this day, two years ago, uh, Pam and Walter Giles uh, lost their son, Jesse, as he passed from this life into the next life, and Eric's nephew. We remember, and we have also just seen the powerful testimony that as Eric just prayed, he just prayed, you are still good, God. That was a powerful testimony, and I've watched the Giles family and the Lots. I've watched you say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you for the testimony that you give us. Uh, and reminding us of the goodness of God, even the most darkest periods of our lives. I also want to uh, offer thanks to the people that have worked so beautifully on the grounds of the church this weekend. Uh, I drove up this morning, and I was blown away. Uh, it was gorgeous. Thank you for giving your time, your efforts uh, to be here. Uh, to, to, to make this place beautiful. And I personally want to thank you that I'm grateful that we have a congregation that loves to serve. Uh, in addition to that group of people, I also want to thank uh, our elders. Uh, they weren't able to serve yesterday morning uh, to help come clean up the church because they were gone on a retreat. And we were discussing the best ways that we could minister to you, uh, minister effectively to your souls I cannot do my job if it was not for my fellow brothers, the elders, and I am just so grateful that you would give up your entire weekend as well uh, to serve our church family. So thank you to both groups of people, and I want to thank God for that as well. I'm going to be praying through uh, Psalm 99. You're welcome to open up the Bible if you'd like to, to look at it along with me as I pray through this text to, to prepare our hearts for the sermon. We declare along with our brother, the psalmist of Psalm 99, that the Lord reigns. And because he reigns, we pray that all the nations should tremble. We know, Lord, that you sit enthroned upon the cherubim, and the earth should quake in view of your mighty power. You are great in Zion. You are exalted over all the peoples. We pray, Lord, that the nations would praise you as you were great and you were awesome. Your name is mighty and you are holy. We know, Lord, that you love justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in your people. Therefore, we will exalt you, O Yahweh, our God, we will worship here on the earth your footstool, and we will proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We know, Lord, that not every sermon is meant <clears throat> to make us feel warm fuzzies, to make us feel good about ourselves, but we know, Lord, that your word should make us come face to face with the one true God and cause us to tremble. So therefore, we pray that your spirit would work mightily among us, that as we read our text, as we preach through it this morning, 
We pray that the Lord Jesus, most of all, would be magnified as we consider what he has done on our behalf. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, with uh, Resurrection Sunday and me conducting a, a men's retreat last week, it's been two weeks since we were in Genesis proper, so let's return to it, shall we? If you don't mind, please turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Genesis. We've just arrived at the third book of Genesis, which contains the story of Noah and the Great Deluge. But in order for us to understand this, we need to place this story in context. If we don't do this, we will come to some misconceptions about the Lord God, about His mercy and His grace, and what many people would end up calling the the God of the Old Testament. So very briefly, let me once again provide you with an overview of the first five chapters of our book in about three minutes, all right? In Genesis 1, we have this beautiful prologue which gives us the origin of everything. The Lord God created everything. He made it pristine and new and sinless. And the pinnacle of his creation was mankind, whom he placed upon the earth to be his image bearer, his representative or his vice regent on the earth. And this divine stewardship was given both to the man and to the woman as they cultivated the garden to spread upon the earth. And in the first book of Genesis, in chapters 2 through 4, we narrow down into this special creation of humanity. We see God's institution of work and the gift of marriage to the man and woman. They were given access to all of creation and only denied eating from one single tree. Eve was tempted by the serpent to eat of that tree, and her husband Adam followed her lead, and thus they ushered sin into the world. And we have seen seen that, that sin brought a curse upon the earth, a death sentence. Death, not just in the cessation of life, but also a, a slow corruption, a contamination of all that was good in God's creation. The man and the woman were warned about this, but they chose to rebel against God's single rule. And we see just how bad the corrosion of sin could be. At the outset of chapter 4, Adam and Eve's firstborn, Cain, murders his younger brother, Abel. And the rest of the chapter tells us about Cain's descendants and how evil they became. But the last two verses of chapter 4 provide us with hope. A descendant named Seth will be the new image bearer. There is hope that mankind will not become completely under the subjugation of sin. Chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 8, are a new book in Genesis. It provides us with a genealogy beginning with Adam through the line of Seth. Unlike the line of Cain and possibly other prodigy of Adam and Eve, Seth's descendants attempt to live righteously before God. They call upon the name of Yahweh. They have a descendant named Enoch who walked in communion with God and did not suffer the full sentence of death but was taken up. We see that Lamech, Noah's father names his son in expectation that Yahweh will bring relief from the curse. The purpose of the genealogy in this second book is to get us into, uh, from Seth to Noah. And at the end of the book, the first eight verses of chapter 6 gives us the overall state of the earth. The godly descendants of Seth intermarry with the rest of the world and they too become wickedly sinful. I mentioned previously that verse 3 should be interpreted as your ESV footnote provides for you. My spirit will not contend against with man. 
Despite the access that mankind had with the Lord, God would not halt their sin anymore. He would not try to resist, uh, to resist their pursuit of it. He would give them over to their sin for 120 years. And they could choose either to, to acknowledge their wickedness and repent, or he would give them over to themselves, which would result in their total destruction. And of course, that's about to happen with the deluge. Out of all humanity, there is only one who has found favor in the eyes of God, and that is the person of Noah. The introduction of Noah in verse 8 is the transition to the third book, which will tell us about Noah and his family. Now, this new section begins here at chapter 6, verse 9, and takes us all the way to the end of chapter 9. And I've chosen to cover this in two sermons, but over these next two weeks, we can easily divide the book into three sections as pre-flood, flood, and post-flood. Events prior to the flood, what happens during the flood, and what occurs immediately afterwards. This morning, I desire to cover the first two of these headings. But before I begin, I need to beg you, to beg you to see this text afresh. I have no doubt that you have been regaled with the tale of Noah and his ark all of your life. And as such, I know that we have been desensitized to this story. I know this because many parents choose to decorate their nurseries with the theme of this story. Above the crib, they might have like a little mobile with animals and a little Noah and a little boat with a rainbow splashed up against as a backdrop. We teach our preschool children songs like Rise and Shine and Give God the Glory, Glory. You know, the one where Noah was told to build an arky, arky. I see advertised in catalogs uh, a toy, a, a Fisher-Price little people Noah and his ark. And, and I hate to rob you the quaintness of such activities, but we need to be careful here. When we read these chapters in our Bibles, we should be stunned with awe. We are talking about an event of mass destruction unparalleled in human history. Apart from those on the ark, the flood destroyed every living surface creature. And I am certain, or I'm not uncertain as to the world's population as of that time of the flood, but I have no doubts that the numbers that drowned surpassed that of the Holocaust or any casualties of any human war. We should be staggered by what we read, not make toys out of it. I had the same reaction just recently when I went into my local grocery store at Easter time and I saw chocolate crosses. What do we need? Chocolate electric chairs? Chocolate nooses? So let me ask you to see this with renewed eyes. Stand and be amazed at the power of our awesome God. Now the pre-flood events can be divided under three headings. God's declaration, Noah's mission, and Noah's obedience. Verse 9 launches the new book with the words, these are the generations, and it introduces us to the major characters of the story of Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from it, we see the person of Noah highlighted. Like his ancestor Enoch, Noah walked with God. We said a few weeks ago how unusual this phrase was in Hebrew. Usually a divinely favored individual is described as walking before God. But here Noah walks 
with God, enhancing the intimacy. He is described as righteous and blameless in his generation. And the word translated as blameless from the Hebrew does not mean sinless, but rather someone who is whole or complete, someone who is walking with integrity. They are attempting to live life as they should, acknowledging a holy God with consistency. I say this as we see Noah having the need to burn, make a burnt sacrifice offering as soon as he gets back on dry ground. Well, the introduction has been made, and now we have God's declaration. Verses 11 and 12 reveal that all of the earth was corrupt due to mankind's sin. And the word corrupt is used seven times in this passage. The world is particularly violent. When there is no right from wrong, when there is no ultimate authority of the Creator, when people do what is evil and call it good, and call what is good evil, then all semblance of the sanctity of life is gone. Violence towards others is the natural outcome, particularly towards the vulnerable. Not sexual sin, as some presume, but violence. We don't get what we want. Therefore, we get angry and we will do anything, including harming others, to express our outrage and obtain what we think we deserve. Other people are pawns to be used, either to be manipulated or to be sacrificed on the board. Because after all, the emphasis would be upon my life. Why should anyone else matter? I have no doubt that is why we are currently seeing this wave of violence spreading across our world right now. But don't miss the point in verse 12. God did not do this. His creation did it to itself. God is about to destroy what has already destroyed itself. He will destroy what has already ruined itself. And he announces in verse 13 that he will wipe out all flesh with the means of the earth. And in verse 17, we will learn this comes by means of a flood. But God will have mercy upon Noah and his family. His intimacy with Noah is demonstrated in that A, he desires to save Noah and his family from the destruction. B, he speaks directly to Noah. And C, he states in verse 18 that he will make a covenant with Noah. Now, this is the first time that the word covenant is used in the Bible, and we'll address the concept more at our next sermon, Lord willing. He gives Noah a mission to construct an ark that is approximately, by modern measurements, 450 feet long by 70 feet wide, by 45 feet tall. That would have been a monumental task. The word ark is also used in this passage seven times, and it is Noah's only means of salvation for himself and his family. There's no other way to be saved. The design was to have at least three lower decks and an upper deck with a roof, and it was to have a single door on its side. But notice what is missing. This boat has no rudder. There is no navigation device. God will guide this vessel in the midst of the flood. And Noah also discovers that he, his wife, and his sons, and his sons' wives are not going to be the only occupants. God will also place at least two of every kind of animal, bird, and insect on the ark, male and female, for their future population. And Noah is to gather food to sustain both his family and all these animals. That is Noah's mission. Build this huge vessel for his family and collect food. Interestingly enough, all we are told on Noah's part is that 
he obeyed God. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That's it. We're not told exactly how long Noah would be given to construct his ark and and collect the food. We're, We're not told the method with which he constructed the ark, such as how did he harvest the wood? Where was it built? Was it near a forest? How long did it take? Well, best guess, maybe 100 years. What did he use to make it watertight? Did, did he do any research prior to the construction? What tools did he use? We're not even told what others thought of him as he built his ark. Though I imagine everyone thought old loony Noah is up there building a big old boat for something called a flood. Maddeningly, the narrator does not tell us anything about these details. And that is the way of Scripture. It doesn't tell us all we want to know only what we need to know. And what we need to know is that Noah obeyed. He built the ark and collected the food as God commanded him. Remember, we're told from Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now, there's more to that verse, but I'm going to save it for the end. But Noah operated out of faith. God said it, Noah believed it, and he obeyed. Now we move into that horrid event of the flood. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, Noah is given seven days to get everything inside the ark. Again, Noah is told the reason why he is saved. He is the only one acting in faith in his entire generation. We are also told an additional detail here. The the Lord also wants Noah to take seven pairs of clean animals in addition to the previous two unclean animals mentioned. Some liberal scholars think this is a mistake that some priest later inserts this last detail in the text to make sure that Noah is staying kosher. I don't think so. Because A, the structure of the text is just too consistent with the overall narrative to have such an addition. And most likely, these extra animals are going to provide food not just for Noah and the other creatures, but also for a later sacrifice that he's going to make in chapter 8, verse 20. But once again, we see the clear words, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Verses 6 through 10 tells us that this occurred in the 600th year of Noah. Once again, he obeyed God. He and his family entered and loaded up the ark, and they were allotted seven days just as he was commanded. And then came the animals, Lord having them enter through the door two by two. This, too, is a supernatural event. It is the Lord that is doing this. Considering how sin had made the animal kingdom violent, I imagine that Noah was somewhat intimidated as God brought lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, into this ark. We may wonder what the rest of the world was doing as all this was occurring. Well, the Lord Jesus tells us what they were doing. He tells us in Matthew chapter 24. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were going about their lives without any thought of any threat over them. They were having their meals and celebrating in their marriages and even planning future, further events of marriage. 
until this particular day, and I'm assuming it's the very day that's described in chapter 7, verse 11, on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600 year, that is when the flood came. On that day, at verse 16, we discovered that the Lord shut the door of the ark, not Noah. God closed them up. Noah and the animals responded just as God commanded prior to that moment, and then God closed the door. This door distinguishes the righteous from the unrighteous. The means of salvation to anyone else was now closed. There are several instances in Scripture where doors become deciding moments in God's judgment. Later in Genesis chapter 19, verse 10, angels will will drag Lot through a door and slam it, saving him from the citizens of Sodom. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, the angel of death will not enter into the homes of those that have the blood of the lamb on their doorframe. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 19, the spies tell Rahab and their family they must stay behind their closed door in their home for safety if they wish to survive the sacking of Jericho. And of course, Jesus referred to himself as a door in John chapter 10, verse 9. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here in Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, The Lord shut Noah and his family in with this door. The means of salvation has been closed off. But notice that that no one else on the earth is making a mad dash for Noah's boat as soon as the first drops of water fall. Now, I want to be careful here. I I don't want to give you the impression that it rained like it rains today and and that the water was a, a slow build like much of our local floods. The passage does not describe it that way. It tells us here in verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11, that the waters broke forth from the deep and from the windows of the heaven they broke open. This wasn't a steady rain. This was a massive deluge coming not just from the sky, but also rising up from the depths of the earth. Verse 7 tells us, or 17 tells us that the waters increased or rose to the point that the ark was floating 20 feet above the mountaintops. The earth was completely submitted to a barrage of water for 40 days until the rain stopped. All land life was destroyed. It was horrific. According to verses 21 through 23, everything that had the breath of life was literally blotted out of the earth with the exception of Noah and those on the ark with him. The waters would prevail not just for 40 days, but for 150 days. That shows us how much water there was by how long it took for it to recede. I can only imagine how Noah and his family felt inside at that moment. Even this moment was a call to to persevere. The darkness inside the boat with probably only candles or lanterns for 40 days before there was any sun. The constant smell of animals and their braying and, and the understanding that Everything they knew prior to stepping into the ark was gone, erased. Truly, this was a faith moment just to maintain one's sanity. But we should point out that despite the judgment on the earth, there is an emphasis on the preservation of life throughout the passage. Chapter 6 Verses 17 through 18, God promises to save Noah and his family. In verses 19 and 20, the emphasis is not just on saving some animals, but every kind of animal and bird and creeping thing. 
This preservation of life is repeated again in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, again in verses 7 through 9, and again in 13 through 16, and once again at chapter, or verse 23, only Noah was left and all those who were with him on the ark. For an event that wiped out pretty much everything, the majority of the verses in the overall passage focus on how God saved some. So now would be a good time to address the skeptics. Whenever the story of the great deluge is given, naturally, people have questions. Like, was it really a worldwide flood? Where did the water come from, and where did it go afterwards? How in the world could Noah fit every known species on the ark along with enough food to sustain them for almost a year? What about dinosaurs? How could the world recover, particularly the plant life, if the flood was worldwide? Well, let me respond to some of those. And I can promise you it will not be a satisfactory answer for most. There have been loads of creation scientists that have proposed theories to answer all of these questions. For example, I have yet to go, but there is the ark encounter in Kentucky where they have erected an ark based on the measurements in Genesis chapter 6. Perhaps Brother Brian or Brother Daniel, maybe y'all will organize a field trip for us. That'd be fun. While I haven't been there, I do remember watching a newsreel of when they invited Bill Nye, the the so-called science guy, uh, to take a tour of the ark. I don't remember much of the interview, but I do remember that the the camera caught his reaction as he began sputtering, this place is dangerous. You people make such an event seem plausible. You think, Bill? Creation scientists also believe that that in order to, to fit on the ark, the Lord brought infant animals upon the boat and possibly kept them in some sort of hibernated state. Here, young dinosaurs could have made it on the ark and died out shortly afterwards due to a lack of food source. And based on Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it's proposed that there was some sort of water canopy that covered the earth, causing the plants to flourish in a type of greenhouse effect. And these scientists say that such a canopy would have kept out harmful radiation and UV rays, which might explain the long lifespans of humans prior to the flood. But they say that this also explains where most of the water came from as that canopy collapsed onto the earth. But just recently, secular scientists released an article discovering that there is more water under the earth's surface than above it. And creation scientists, they pounce down on this saying, aha, that's where the waters of the deluge went. Perhaps. All of those theories are plausible. But I'm going to trump all those by merely stating that all of these answers and responses are under the assumption that the flood came about by truly natural means under the same conditions that we have today. And for all I know, that very well may be the case. But like creation, I, nor you, nor anyone else was there to witness it. And also like creation, the great deluge was a supernatural event. It was miraculously. And and like the creation account, I'm going to go with what God has recorded in the Bible. So far, it's always proven to be true to me. Today, even secular scientists say that there's more water under the crust of the earth than above it. Well, next year they may change their minds again. So I'm going to trust the word of God regardless. Christians, you can trust the scriptures to be sufficient for your every need. It may not tell you everything you want to know you can trust it's going to be sufficient for every need. 
And one thing I am certain of, though, is that this is a worldwide flood. The Bible is too clear in pointing out that all life on the earth was extinguished with the exception of Noah and those on the ark. In Matthew 24 and Luke 17, Jesus believed and portrays this as a worldwide flood. The book of Hebrews and 2 Peter portray this as a worldwide flood. Theologically, it has to be a worldwide flood. So I'm going to stick with the word here and believe it was literally a worldwide flood. And again, much like the creation account, Emphasis should be on God when we read this story. And if we're paying attention, above even the emphasis of this preservation of life, God and his sovereignty just radiates off the pages. Let me give you five ways that the text emphasizes God over man. I'm going to be quick with these. Number one, the whole narrative of Genesis 6 through chapter 9 consists of four divine speeches. Chapter 6, verse 13, and God said to Noah. Chapter 7, verse 1, then the Lord said to Noah. Chapter 18, verse 15, then God said to Noah. And chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 8 all considered the same speech. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them. What is unusual about all of this is that at no point does Noah speak. He is silent the entire time. He merely obeys. The first word in the entire Bible that Noah speaks aloud is the curse of his grandson, Canaan, in chapter 9, verse 25. So this narrative emphasizes God over man, first, with divine speeches, and second, Noah is able to construct an ark and collect food, but God supernaturally brings the animals to Noah. In chapter 6, verse 20, it tells us specifically that the animal kingdom will come into you for you to keep them alive. God is sovereignly bringing all land-based breathing creatures to Noah for safekeeping. That seems all fine and dandy when the kittens and the puppies arrive, but it's a supernatural faith at work when a couple of velociraptors show up at your door. Obviously, the Lord is at work when Every species arrives in your boat and is placed under your care, and he preserves them the entire time through the flood. So the divine speech, the superintendence of the animals, and third, God is in complete control of the flood, of the water. This makes this disaster, this massive disaster, completely under his direction. In chapter 6, verse 17, he says, he will blot out the earth with a flood. In chapter 7, verse 1, he gives Noah a seven-day notice that the flood is coming. And he states in verse 4 that the rain will come for 40 days and 40 nights. And then we see in verse 10 and verse 17 that the waters do precisely that. The rain appears on the seventh day, and it stops 40 days after that exactly. And just as God shut the door of the ark, he will tell Noah when he can leave the ark in chapter 8, verse 16. Only God knows when it's safe to to leave the boat on a supersaturated surface of ground. God is sovereignly in control of the flood. As Psalm 29 declares, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Fourth, While there is all this majestic power of the Lord at work, the text reveals a deeply personal God. Notice that all throughout that God desires people to walk righteously before him. 
He is disappointed when they do not. But the fact that Noah is walking with God reveals that Yahweh invites fellowship with his beloved. He speaks directly to Noah. In love, he warns Noah and he safeguards passage through the flood. It's not for his sons or their wives' righteousness that they too are preserved, but for Noah's sake. He's the only one who has found favor with God. But for Noah, God saves the man's family too, post-flood. And a little later in chapter 9, he will bless Noah and his boys to, to fill the earth and be his image bearers once again. He will make a covenant with Noah, a promise to Noah taking all the stipulations upon himself. This sovereign God is also deeply personal with his image bearer. But I've saved the best for last. This story of the flood teaches us a much bigger principle about God. It teaches us about his sense of justice. For centuries, God had been patient And yet, rather than mankind repenting and improving, sin became worse. God allowed the scenario to play out for itself, and the whole bunch became corrupted. Men and women ruined not only themselves, but their contamination spread through all the world, including the animal kingdom. Out of all creation, only one man was considered righteous enough to start the process over again, Noah. It's not that Noah was sin-free, that 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 was the reason why he was saved. But he was the only one who had some faith in the Lord. Remember when I read Hebrews 11, 6 through 7? Let me finish the rest of that verse. But I'll start with verse 6 again. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And here's the rest of it. By this, meaning his faith in God, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's faith proved that there was an exit of escape, but no one took it except Noah. It condemned everyone else. Whatever is not of faith is sin, and sin before a holy God is that bad. In one 40-day period, God brought down his righteous wrath upon the face of the earth. And with the exception of Noah and the ark, it decimated everything. That is what sin deserves. Even more, we consider the immortal soul of man. In the weeks ahead, we will see what the righteousness of Noah and his sons do after the flood. We'll see that they will blow it again. Once again, sin will spread over the earth despite Noah surviving and despite all the evidence around us of a worldwide flood coming from ancient history. But don't miss the point. We need one greater than Noah to intercede for us. We need a sinless, spotless righteousness before God. That is what this story is foreshadowing. The coming of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And allow me to point out the obvious here of this 
upside down nature of what will happen in Noah's time. God punished all of mankind and wiped it off the face of the earth. But when Jesus came, he took upon himself all the curse of sin and received the due punishment for sin of all of us. That is what we deserved. What the people in Noah's time deserved, that's what Jesus took upon himself for us. We should put our hands over our mouths in awe of what Jesus did. We should sing at the top of our lungs what a great and merciful God we have that he provided an escape, not just for Noah, but for me and for you, for our children. What grace that our God delays the final judgment, not wishing any to perish, but desiring all to come to him to find mercy and grace at the cross. Now is the day of salvation, for we do not know what tomorrow holds. Friend, do what Noah does in this passage. Obey. And we are told to put our faith in Christ, that Christ is the only ark. His cross of wood is the only means of our salvation. It is the only way that we can be saved from the Lord's judgment. You don't find refuge from Jesus. You find refuge in Jesus. Place your faith upon him and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I hope my brothers and sisters have been like myself as we read this passage. It seems like the Holy Spirit just is working so hard through this text to to just show us what a powerful, awesome, mighty God you are. And Lord, let us remember that this was brought about not because you are some kind of cruel God, but because we've ruined ourselves. We became sinners. We chose to rebel. We chose to to worship the created things rather than the creator. We chose to continue our pursuit of sin, even after we had been warned, even after we see the signs and the damage of what we do. And that, Lord, when you brought this judgment on the world, you saved one because that one had faith. And, Lord, we should now look out upon the earth and we should see the the new creation process as it works, as we we see the the beautiful earth that that has come about since that flood. To know that, Lord, you are the God that can restore all things, that you can make all things new again, and that you will do so even now with us that place our faith in Christ and what he's done on the cross. And that, Lord, when we consider that, when when we put our faith in that, we know that we have a greater hope knowing that you will be the one that will restore all things once again. That when the new heaven and the new earth arrive, it will truly be glorious as you intended it to be. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look at the cross of Christ, that we would see 
the means of our salvation, what it obtained for us, because it is the only way. And I pray, Lord, for any friend that came here today, anyone that's listening to the sound of my voice on the internet or any other means, I pray that they would respond in faith and find this glorious Savior who loved him and gave himself up for them. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.